Hello, this is the Away Leg. This week, it's Michael Hanlon, Dan Turner-Hughes, and me, Joe Amos. The longest ever Premier League season is finally over, and we take a look at the top four. But first, we think about what's going on with fixture planning. Hello, gents. How are we, Michael? I'm good, mate. How are you? You know, getting on, getting on. How good is anyone these days? Well, yeah, there is that. Dan, how, how are you? I'm, I'm living. Still breathing. All right. Well, we'll get straight into it. Uh, the first thing we've got to talk about today is the absolutely manic busy schedule that we've got coming up over the next few oh. months, up towards Christmas. Um, so today, the 27th, uh, the transfer window in England is now officially open. Premier League fixtures have finished. However, games have just finished within the last half hour or so for playoff first legs uh, for Cardiff-Fulham. We've then got a couple of days before Swansea-Brentford and then Cardiff-Fulham again before we move into August. Then we've got the FA Cup final on the 1st, so that's Arsenal-Chelsea playing. I believe, and again, this is—I feel this can't be true from the research. It is the Scottish Premiership also starts on the first. I'm aware they didn't finish their season, but they also do currently still have debates on who actually is in that league because of some odd voting system involving Dundee. We won't get into that fully. The final day of the Serie A season, Juventus are already champions, but it's now, as it was the Premier League, a race to see who finishes in the top four. Um, the Spanish transfer window and the Championship player finals are on the fourth. Then. To make it even worse. Then on Wednesday the 5th and Thursday the 6th, you've got four Europa League games in each bracket. Then the 7th and the 8th, you've got Champions League games. Juve against Lyon, Man City against Real Madrid in their second legs. Bayern, Chelsea, Barca, Napoli, their second legs. You've then, at the same time as that, got Champions League qualifying preliminaries. But Europe League quarterfinals, Champions League, semi-finals. The only days we've got off in August where there is no football no major football. I believe there's still going to be Scottish League games and I think League of Ireland games, I think, are going on. But, you know, sorry for everyone's a fan of them, but does anyone really care? So, yeah, it's the 3rd, the 20th, the 22nd, the 24th, and the 27th, 28th, and 29th are the only oh. days there isn't being a major game of football being played. However, there is also still transfer windows open at that point. So, it's absolutely anybody's guess what's going on. Because obviously anyone who's signed now in the transfer windows won't be able to play in the Champions League remaining fixtures for this season because of how the registration works, I think. Timo Werner will not be playing for either Leipzig or Chelsea in the remaining games. I don't know. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this in the way that... Well, obviously we haven't seen anything like this current situation. You'd think they'd have, have like had some sort of contingency plan should something like this had happened. If that like something from FIFA or you wafer or any of the kind of federations, they should have had something like yes, football's not the be all and end all. It's just been an absolute kind of mess. It seems like they're making it up as they go along. They don't have clues what's going on. I honestly think that Timo Werner could probably turn up at Chelsea in the Champions League and they'll just go, you know what, go on then, have a go, knock yourself out, kid. I think part of the reason that we've got in a really complicated situation with it all is that everyone wants to have the games played, everyone wants to finish these competitions and get them done. So my biggest issue is, however, given that football was cancelled practically in March, 
you've had several months to kind of work out what the hell you're doing. Yeah. You have plenty of time to work out to kind of go like, right, if football, do, if we do finish the season, we're gonna when are we going to finish it? How are we going to finish it? Let's get these calendars sorted out rather than ending up in a situation where, because there has already been conversations and talks and requests from certain Premier League clubs, I think major ones are Liverpool and Manchester City, about playing their youth teams, their actual youth players, who are not registered as first team players in cup competitions, particularly in earlier rounds, because they have absolutely no idea how many fixtures they're going to have to play. So Manchester City and Liverpool are two major ones who will probably be competing for a title. Still wanting to play a top quality game every week when yeah. the Premier League restarts in less than seven weeks-ish. They'll then yeah. have two cup competitions. There'll be a community shield at some point. God only knows when that's going to happen. It's baffling how on earth anyone has gotten in this situation where you have this many games all happening near enough at the same time. Yeah, no one wants to drop their competition. Obviously, UEFA will say, no, you've got to play the Champions League, and Premier League will say, well, it's the Premier League, and FA will go, well, we want the cup competition to carry on, but something's got to give somewhere, surely. Yeah, for sure. Like, I do with the Community Shields. Like, there's no point in that. Have it in December or around Christmas time, or wait until the end of this coming season to have it. I get that it's a nice pre-season game that people sometimes take seriously, but it's going to be Liverpool versus Arsenal or Chelsea. It's for the fans. It's for it's for people to see the team at Wembley. Like they might not have got to the FA Cup final or whatever. It's for them to kind of have that chance to see their team play at Wembley. Yeah, it's, it's a day out rather than a competitive fixture, isn't it? It's not the whole. It's like a light-hearted kind of. The whole thing about it was it was the charity shield. It was a game mm. where they. All the proceeds of that game went to a charity, and I think it was the Ronald McDonald's Houses charity or whatever that they set up. And but at this moment in time, it just seems a little bit pointless because the money that would usually come in from the ninety thousand people at Wembley isn't going to be coming in. It's, well, it's the same with a lot of, like you said, the, with uh, the community shield. A lot of these uh, super cups, so it's you know the winner of the league and the winner of the cup sort of thing. Um, a lot of them feel almost redundant now because like UEFA's got their scheduled in, for, so it's the Europa League winner and the Champions League winner scheduled in for September the 24th, which, yeah, fine. Germany's got their scheduled in as the DFL Super Cup for the 30th of September, which, yeah, fine. But if Bayern Munich, if Bayern Munich wins, the, wins the Champions League, they're going to be tired for that one. Particularly given when, you, especially when you've then got international fixtures, because you've then got the Nations League, which starts in the beginning of September. So you're going to have certain players who are going to be so exhausted. I just don't understand why they're trying to rush back international football. Yeah, I get that we've got an international competition coming up and we've got the World Cup in how many years, but it's like you're asking for trouble. This situation that's going on in the world hasn't gone away yet. No, it, it does. It does feel like we're very much right. kind of just going. Well, we've got to get this going again because we have to. It's football. People love football. Yes, but it's the no. least. It's the most important thing that doesn't matter. The fact that they're on about letting people back into stadiums like in October. Well, the French Cup, the Coupe de France, was on Friday with fans in the stadium. It was a slightly more limited number of fans. It wasn't a packed out stadium, but there were fans in the stadium. There were fans in the ground. I have no, I had no problem with them finishing the Premier League games behind closed doors, and I assume the Champions League will be very similar. I actually because... quite enjoyed it. Yeah, well, it, it's it's a nice change. It's a nice change. It's something different. Football does get a bit stale towards the end of the season, whereas this break and now coming back and it all being a bit weird, it's kept it interesting, if nothing else. 
So, obviously, the season's now finished. Uh, Liverpool are champions. They've been champions for at least a couple of weeks, but, you know, season's now officially over. We now know who stayed up, who's gone down, who's won, who's in European competition. We're going to talk the top four this week, just to make life simpler. So, Liverpool, obviously, have won. Deserving champions, I think. They've had a good season. You can't really deny that, can we? They've been the no. best team in the Premier League. It's as simple as. No team has come close to them. I would say maybe it's Man City were close <clears throat> before Christmas. They, they, I think they closed the gap. I think they closed the gap to about four points. It was the closest that anyone had actually got to them, uh, barring maybe Leicester. Out of all the teams that I really felt that were actually going to cause Liverpool some serious problems was definitely Leicester. I think Liverpool deserved to win. Man City, towards the end, stepped off the gas a little bit. That gave Liverpool an opportunity. When we came back, they only needed six points to win the league. Only people who could have messed it up for Liverpool this season was Liverpool. And how many times have Liverpool done that? I wish that they didn't happen this way so they could actually raise that title up high how they should have and deserved to. It is, it is a shame that this season will always have slight asterisks next to it, considering that Liverpool have had a frankly incredible season. There's there's no questions for that one. They've obviously been the best, one of the best teams in Europe, if not the best team in Europe. Klopp speaks to the fans and for the fans. It's been years since Liverpool have had a manager that does that. The fact since that he was like, when, when he came back, not so much, but initially. But that was before the Premier League era. That was when they were dominant. Yeah, it before. was still, you know, Division One Premier League. It's still the same thing. It's just another name. So, obviously, Dan, you mentioned uh, Ken Douglas uh, and Mike, you mentioned Liverpool making mistakes and it would cost Liverpool the title of Liverpool. We obviously remember the uh, the Stephen Gerrard incident a few years ago, where it was the closest they'd been to winning a title, aside from last year, where they were one point out of it. But did anyone really see City dropping that point? The last time Liverpool were crowned champions of the first division was in the 1989-1990 season, with a goal difference of plus 41, which now looks very low in comparison. Jurgen Klopp joined the club in 2015 when they finished 8th behind West Ham, Southampton and eventual champions Leicester. He's done a fantastic job, hasn't he? He has made such a significant difference to that club. Yeah. Since he came in 2015, uh, I saw a graphic of the original team that he had and you compare that to, to the team that he has now and has had for the last two years, there is no comparison whatsoever and, and it's still incredible what Klopp actually still managed to do with that team yeah they finished fifth but they played some really good football in that season and you look at them now I mean you know going from convincingly winning the Champions League to just over a year and a half later winning the Premier League it's, it's an incredible achievement all they need now is a domestic cup do they? Jurgen Klopp to Liverpool I think is going to be like Alex Ferguson to Man United me, personally, as a, as a football fan, I'm not a massive Liverpool fan. I've enjoyed the way they've played football this season. You look at Liverpool as a football club, as a, as a whole entity, and you think, with those fans, with that stadium, with that manager, with that squad, the possibilities are endless. Jurgen Klopp has this knack of making teams better. Borussia Dortmund were a good team. They had good players, but he took them to the next level. For me, football managers don't get as much credit, especially in the Premier League. A lot of the recruitment at Liverpool throughout the last few years has not been solely down to Klopp. There was a couple of years ago a big overhaul and they went in a lot more focused with analytics and data, which I think served them very well. Their recruitment obviously has been exceptional, particularly the last couple of years. I can't really think of a player they've signed who's been a really kind of been a bit of a waste Lazar Markovic comes to mind I'm pretty sure that he was signed before Klopp got there though I think what 
the whole kind of for me the Klopp. best manager in the Premier League is what he does with these bit part players let's take Divock Origi for one example Origi for me is like the generic super sub yeah. comes on he'll bang a goal in out of Champ- nowhere he was so important in the Champions League win last year just oh, coming out with God. goals from absolutely nowhere the recruitment has been exceptional we've got the start here of only seven players from Klopp's season he first joined been regular players this season being Dejan Lovren Joe Gomez James Milner Jordan Henderson Adam Lallana Roberto Firmino and Divock Origi I, I didn't realise that Roberto Firmino was already at the club before Klopp that hadn't occurred yeah. to me I hadn't thought about that when Klopp arrived Firmino was kind of this side player no one really thinking about him you know it was, it was a lot more focused on you know Balotelli or Benteke or whoever else they brought in you know these you know these much bigger physically stronger strikers and then Klopp's come in and gone no no we've, we've got some players who don't necessarily fit the standard mould of a Premier League striker but are exceptionally talented players that we need to then slightly change how the team works to get the most out of them. I think that's what he excels at. He he puts in his style and his philosophy in the team, but manages to get the best out of the players he's got. He you know he obviously he knows what he wants, where which brings us to the recruitment again of he's brought in players that are actually useful to him. And um, like you know, we all scoffed a little bit a few years ago when Georgino Van Alden signed from I believe it was he came from Newcastle at the time and everyone went, That's insane. What are you doing? Why are you signing Van Alden? He's, he's just nearly been relegated from the Premier League with, with Newcastle. That's absolutely insane. And then Exceptional player. With Wijnaldum, though, it did take a year or two for him to get used to playing at that level. Who's been Liverpool's most important player this season? Obviously, you know, your front runners here are Van Dijk, Jordan Henderson, Salah, Mane, Alexander-Arnold, Robertson. Near enough the whole team could get a mention here. They've well, all played so well. The player for me that's been the most important for Liverpool, Virgil van Dijk. Because without him, that back four would not have became the brick wall that it became. The other player for me that has been the glue that held that team together since they lost to Real Madrid has been James Milner. Because James Milner did a job every single time Klopp asked him to do something that was probably out of his comfort zone, play right back, left back during a bit of an injury crisis and then in the midfield as well. It's James Milner. Mike, for you, who have you got? Henderson. When he wasn't in in the team, they lost. Obviously, John Henderson on Friday morning. Uh, was named the uh, Football Writers Association Football of the Year in front of De Bruyne and Marcus Rashford. Obviously, that award isn't purely down to on-pitch performances. It is down to everything else as well. If you just said to me when he's first signed for Jordan Henderson is going to lift the Premier League title, I'd I'd have laughed. When they signed Wijnaldum, we scoffed. When they signed Henderson, we scoffed. I got it. I understood like Gerard was coming to the end of his career, they needed someone to fill that slip-shaped gap, and he seemed like the natural fit. And he has, and he's still, and it's like it was. I think it was Brendan Rodgers who wanted to offload him, and he was devastated. One of the biggest they, credits to Jordan Henderson is commitment and dedication that man has. He's, he is so so enthusiastic it's not even the word I think more than anyone like he's had a couple of sort of niggling injuries which is why he was out of the team for a short while uh, when yeah. things did start to go a little bit south and they did go out the Cups and they did go out the Champions League and, and like from you know from all reports and from you know his other teammates talking about and whatnot the effort and the work he puts in at getting back on that pitch and getting back in that squad and to make to get his team to that title to really just push him forward I, I, yeah, I don't think that can really be understated is how important that Never part of his game is. Anything about him grumbling about not being in the team or grumbling no. about yeah. being content with his role. I think that if you... Yes, I think I agree with you about Milner, Dan. 
over the course of his Liverpool career, he has filled in in all, almost every single position on that pitch. And you cannot fault his effort. I think this season he's played less games and he's been a little bit less influential on the pitch, but he's been more influential off the pitch. One of the points that I was going to make about Klopp quickly before we kind of moved on from that was the amount of youth players that actually went up at the yes. medal have to hit a certain amount of games in a season to get a medal. Do you know what I mean? So it's like that is a thing that happens and to have so many youth players up there with the first team that Man City they've got like Phil Ford, Raheem Sterling still proper young but to have that new blood lifelong Liverpool fans by the way like that have got a Premier League medal at the age of 70 18. I think a very key player for what you're talking about here is Alexander-Arnold, obviously. He's a Liverpool fan. He has been for probably his entire life. And he started 36 games this season. Is Liverpool's highest assist earner this season with 13. That's crazy. For a right and as a fullback, it's incredible. To be fair, the second highest assist of this season is Andy Robertson on 12. It clearly shows how they play, if nothing else. But... Even even on the last day of the season, the last game of the season, yeah, it was a game that they didn't need to win. It didn't really matter. It was a bit of a throwaway game. Klopp decided not to start Alexander-Arnold. He did play. He came on, but he didn't start him. They've got five subs now. They can use them. And he steady started Neko Williams. Just going incredible. back onto what Mike was saying about Jordan Henderson, he is the consummate professional. He is a likeable guy as well. Like, he's always very polite to people. and He's always got the time. He'll always make the time. Mm. But on the football pitch, he... Trent Alexander-Arnold, Andy Robertson are three of those guys, along with James Milner, who put their work in week in, week out. You want them on your team, as well as the fact that Trent and Andy Robertson are two of the best wing-backs in the Premier League, if not the world. Andy Robertson signed from Hull. Andy Robertson's story of how he ended up at Liverpool is insane. Basically, uh, wanting to stop playing football and get a job that actually pays better wage, given that it just wasn't working out for him. And he got released, ended up at Hull... And then, mm. then got signed for Liverpool and everyone was like, who yeah. the hell is this weird Scottish kid signing from Hull? Like, again, one of those signs that we all kind of went, what's this about? Like what happened, yeah. like Jordan Henson, like all these others. There's been like, there hasn't been that many, even to a certain extent, even Mohamed Salah, because everyone was like, well, he mm. kind of flopped at Chelsea a little bit, didn't he? Like, you know, he's, he's fine, but he's not special sort of thing. And then and they come out the gate and they're absolutely exceptional. I think there's only, the only diamonds I can think of that were that were really obvious, like, nah, they're going to be, they're going to be really important, really, really good players. Were Van Dyke, Allison, yeah. who obviously, who came, for a lot of money from Roma, Sadio Mane, and to a certain extent, Naby Keir. And then Naby Keir is the only one I can really say has been almost disappointing. He's still been good. He's not been terrible by no means, but he's not you know, up to the scratch of the other three. I know that we could probably end up talking about the, the entire Liverpool team from top to bottom. I think one of the players that was has been also a little bit overlooked as well to his quality is Fabinho. Like we said with everyone, everyone in that squad this, this season has really done a job and has done what they've been mm-hmm. asked to do, which I think is credit to, to Klopp more than anyone else really for that off. Absolutely. Players, yeah. you know, he's got a group of players there who, whether it's down to recruitment or stylizing or whether just having belief in the manager, you know, he asks them to jump, they say how high, and jobs get done, things happen. So yeah, so Liverpool obviously deserving winners. Now, for a lot of clubs, coming in comfortably second, you know, 15 points ahead of third Premier League season, you know, would be a good season for a lot of clubs, but... For City, it's a bit different. You know, there were, there were some high expectations for Manchester City, who obviously won the uh, the League Cup, the Carabao Cup. 
one of the things that I did notice about that semi-final was how unbelievably dejected and fed up Kevin De Bruyne looked with Man City and actually being there. Now, it, I could be wrong, but when you look at his body language, with how much effort he was putting in, and then you see just how little they were producing at the, after he was putting key passes through that destroyed our defence on many occasions. He wanted the match to be over. I don't. Th- I can't see De Bruyne being there much longer if City don't get their act together and get a, a trophy of some sort. I think, I think that might have, been a, might have been a case of just that day, sort of thing, because scored an absolute peach and got, a, and got a couple of assists and whatnot on the last day of the season, did really well, and he, he looked to be there, he looked to be enjoying it. Obviously, there was questions being raised about his and a few other players' futures, but he was the, the real big one who was a potential loss for them if they weren't going to have European football for two seasons. With the ban, which has now been overturned, which does put City at rest a lot, you know, that kind of secures the futures a bit more, and I think a lot of the players will stick it out and will stay, because they... You know they do believe they've got a they've got a good run there. They've got a good team. They've got they've got obviously got potential to win things given they've broke 100 points last season. I think they need to show progression because they're an excellent team and they've continued to be an excellent team. They've had a bit of a bad year this year. Even if even if they won the season this year, what was going to be the difference? They're still not winning the treble. They're still unlikely to win the Champions League. I don't think anyone wants to be at a club where they're just good. They want to be getting better. They want to be the best. And if they can't win everything, they're not the best. It's a very odd thing, but that's how football is. It's competitive sport. That's the whole point of it. I think on that same token, Joe, you've made a very, very good point. You want to be the best. You want to be playing constantly and constantly being competitive. And just looking at how City's been for the last year, is it me or does it seem that they're starting to plateau? And they're not getting much better than they actually are, especially with them losing David Silva. I think this season is going to be an outlier. We'll see going forward in the next season and with the remaining Champions League fixtures of this season. Because obviously they did have the European ban hanging over them for a lot of this season. And then obviously they had the injury problems in defence and everything went a little bit south. Liverpool kind of started to pull away from the league. I think there was might well have been a feel later on in the season of like, oh, you know, what's the point? Like, we're not getting anything out of this. You know, the defence is a bit leaky because we've lost Laporte and... You know, I wouldn't feel comfortable making a firm sort of call on that one and saying like there are clearly problems at Man City but I think it's definitely worth something worth keeping an eye on Liverpool having such an excellent season being so good I think it's the best thing that could happen for City because now they've actually got a challenge they've got competition it's yeah. not like oh, we're going to walk away with this every year we did mention it City have had a lot of defensive problems this year with injuries Fernandinho around as being a very important person in City's midfield started 24 games at centre-back this season and only two yeah. in midfield because they just haven't had anyone well okay you've lost company but you shouldn't have have to put centre midfielders at centre back. Your league champions. Like, how are you getting caught out? When you know, when you've got as much money as you do, when you are consistently good, when you've won the title two years in a row, you shouldn't be in a position where you can't bring a centre back in. Someone to fill a gap, if nothing else. If- get Nathan Ake from Bournemouth. Like, why weren't they trying to get someone of like that level? These problems weren't like they were consistent throughout the season. If I'm Guardiola and I'm looking at my squad and I'm trying to come up with like a shopping list, something that really concerns me with City's recruitment in the minute it's the constant talk of needing a left back City have spent hundreds of millions on left backs yes they've obviously had problems with Benjamin Mendy's just not really been a player that anyone thought he was going to be but we're still going about left backs for City we're still going about left backs and full backs for City particularly this season you had a bigger problem there it wasn't a left back that was your issue your problem was your centre backs that was the problem you had you needed to get a centre back in who could do a job there and replace Laporte while he was injured and they didn't but on that note Edison getting the golden glove 
she's probably said about City's defensive frailties, they kept more clean sheets than everyone else. So what do we know, I suppose? <laughs> a lot of City's clean sheets and a lot of them have come at the end of the season after the restart when Laporte's been fresh and everyone's been back. Where they have been, best team in the world in some of those games where they've brushing teams aside. They were phenomenal in some of those games. But that's when you've got a full squad. But when you've got a decent keeper behind you, it almost doesn't matter who's in front. Moving on from City's defence into the midfield, Rodri, who I think has shown this season that he actually can be the successor to Fernandinho, who's obviously getting on a bit now. He's had a very good season. He's made the most passes per 90 in the club for this season. Most accurate long passes per 90, most accurate short passes per 90 of, of any City player who's made more than 15 appearances. He's been good. He's been a solid midfielder. He's played a bit defensively. He has covered that defence a little bit while it has been a bit frail. Uh, I think he's done a good job doing what he's been brought in to do. Any, anything, anything more anyone wants to really say about Rodri and the midfield before we move on to the two biggest names in the midfield for Man City? He's definitely come in and done a job that was required of him. I think we can safely say that. Whenever I've seen Rodri play, he's always been quite a defensive force for the midfield. He could quite seamlessly take over from Fernandinho. Other than that, there's not really a whole lot to say about Rodri. He's very much a role player. He's fairly understated, I suppose. Um, one of the more important players for this season for Man City has also been Kevin De Bruyne, who has won the Playmaker Award. Is that what they're calling it these days? Got yeah, assist. Equaled Thierry Henry's record of 20 assists. He's made the most key passes per 90 in terms of actual scoring opportunities. Moving on to another attacking midfielder who will not be with City next season. Played his final game yesterday for them. Darren Silver, who has made 434 appearances for City in all competitions. Won 14 trophies been four league titles, two FA Cups, five League Cups and three Community Shields. He's had a handful of individual awards, PFA Team of the Year twice. Uh, He's been Man City's Player of the Season and City's Player's Player of the Season once. How highly rated and how highly lauded should David Silva's contributions to City be held? The man deserves a statue. That's how highly I rate David Silva. Since City's takeover, I think he's been one of the most important players going. We've seen this season how important company was to that squad. I think the shame here is that we won't see such a big impact next season without David Silva. His yeah. position is covered by De Bruyne and Bernardo Silva. They replace and tapping De Bruyne to replace him. They've planned for that future already. But yeah, he's so excellent. David Silva, I think he's almost overlooked in a case of great plays in the Premier League because he is so understated, particularly in that City squad just shortly after the takeover when they really took off. Where obviously, you know, you've got these big personalities in the team, you know, you've got Tevez was around at that time, you've got Balotelli yeah. in there. I think David Silva very much is understated in just talk the press that off. Like like we said about Jordan Henderson, he's kind of there and you don't really hear complaints, you don't hear really hear gripes. You know, he does a fantastic job. And it has done for City for a long time now. I'll be interested to see where he goes next. I, I don't think anyone would begrudge him going somewhere to earn a boatload of cash. Your God, yeah. Mike, any addition to For me, I think David Silva is the best Premier League midfielder of the last 10 years. Very hard pressed to find a more consistent player in the Premier League than mm. David Silva. Moving across Manchester to United. It's a weird season for Man United to finish third, despite the fact that before Christmas, I had Ole Gunnar Solskjaer lined up to be sacked before Christmas, before the new yeah. year. Never mind coming third and getting Champions League football. It's a hell of a turnaround, given they, uh, they won eight out of their first 20 games. Eight. He inherited problems but he's done exactly that he's turned it around and got Man United in the top four in third and Man United have done themselves a service by bringing in Bruno Fernandes who for me reminds me quite a bit of Paul Scholes they've needed that playmaker for quite yeah, a few years now I, I think I think Solskjaer is going to be a mainstay for Manchester United for quite some years it's an incredible turnaround particularly after the restart they've been 
incredible, which will lead us on Bruno Fernandes. Given they lost one game in their last 15, United have played 17 games since signing him in January. His first game was in February. He started 14 of those 17 games and they've not lost a single one. Been sublime. He's been the absolute catalyst for that team mm-hmm. to really go on and do, frankly, some really good football. I'm not a Manchester United fan, and I will usually slate Manchester United as being a little bit dull, a little bit boring, because that's my experience of Man United. I'm a fairly recent football fan. My knowledge of football doesn't really exist before 2010. Bruno Fernandes being brought in, you've had Marcus Rashford and Mason Greenwood playing extraordinarily well. They've been excellent. Question I want to ask you two, have got much more knowledge of actually playing football than I do. A lot of people have lauded the fact of how to footed Mason Greenwood is how important is that as a skill for a player for a forward I think it's invaluable like if your job is to score goals you want to be scoring goals doesn't matter if it's left foot right foot head I get the Mason Greenwood height I think that he needs to be nurtured I like Rashford but I always feel that players that kind of just break straight into like these bigger teams like yeah Rashford's your Greenwood's your Foden your Mounts I mean those players like I I think Ryan Kent's going to be brilliant if he stays at Liverpool I think he's going to be amazing if he goes to Rangers I think that might stunt his growth the season on loan either Rangers but I always feel a little bit suspect at these players that kind of start for their like parent club straight away have that risk of either pushing on and being incredible or falling by the wayside I think Dean Henderson being on loan at Sheffield United is an, is an excellent thing for his career he's getting Premier League experience now which is an incredible thing and he's proven himself to be very competent and very good which is always excellent but I'd always be very suspect of him starting which brings me on our, one of our next topics of Manchester United is David De Gea now you two have both played a bit of time as goalkeepers you've seen some stats between David Hare and Dean Henderson because there's a lot of fans of football and a lot of United fans who are suggesting that maybe Dean Henderson should be brought back to United to replace David De Gea as the number one personally I think that's a bad idea but between the two of them there's not that big a difference has David De Gea had a bad season? Is David De Gea bad? No, he's not. But I think there is two sides of this argument and it could go either way. First way is you bring Dean Henderson in now because of how impressive he has been for Sheffield United. Regardless of them having a decent defence, has it been a better defence than Man United? Arguably, yes. But... Has he been better than David De Gea? Maybe he's a little bit slightly better, yes. Especially with David De Gea having having these howlers in him. Dean Henderson is looking to be more of the safer goalkeeper. His hands are safer. They look, they seem safer, especially this season. He's been sublime. Whereas David De Gea appears to some people to be on a slight decline. But we've seen it with goalkeepers where they'll have a couple of bad seasons. It's a huge risk. Either Dean Henderson could turn out to be, unfortunately, maybe he's another average goalkeeper that isn't Man United standard and it'll leave people wishing that they kept David De Gea. Or Dean Henderson ends up being an absolute world beater of a goalkeeper and ends up going to a different team and Man United, again, are left with egg on their faces. It's a catch-22 situation. Is the best option possibly bring Dean Henderson back next season to Man United? Don't necessarily have him play as the number one. Keep David De Gea plays number one but have Dean Henderson wait in the wings so if David Hayer does get a bad run of form or maybe picks up an injury you know, as we've seen with other keepers to then have a really good keeper to step in in that gap they've got Sergio Romero my opinion on David De Gea and Dean Henderson is De Gea doesn't look interested he looks a little bit frustrated as the ball kind of creaks under his hands and or, or off his face and into the net he, it looks like he's dejected he's not happy where he is I think De Gea needs a new challenge I don't think 
think that Henderson should be Man United goalkeeper. If I was Chris Wilder, what I would do is I would go to Oli Gunnar Solskjaer with a blank check and go in how much. You've just secured Premier League football for the next season. You've got Sander Berg. You've got a decent team. If you lose Henderson, your team falls apart. He's such a key feature of that team. I think Sheffield want to keep hold of him. But what I do yeah. to United to kind of part ways is insert a buyback clause. Or maybe even first refusal. So yeah, Chelsea came in with a forty-five million pound bid for Dean Henderson in five years, or seventy-six million, because that's the way the world's going again. Mm. What I'd do is I'd be like, well, Man United can sign him for thirty-five. I think that sounds almost sensible. That seems a reasonable option. That's Um, what I'd do. I mean, Romero hasn't really done anything when he's filled in for De Gea. I like, think Romero is a fantastic cupkeeper. It's his role. It's his place, Romero, really, isn't Romero's it? Romero's the same as um, a David Ospina. He's practically the same goalkeeper. Yeah, well, David, David Ospina, Sergio Romero, Willy Caballero, they're, they're all the same person to me, really, aren't they? They're a solid cupkeeper, yeah. but they're not a Premier League star but, week in, week out. However, on the, on the subject of number two goalkeepers, I just kind of really want to give a shout out to my boy, Emmy Martinez, who's been absolutely fantastic since Leno's horrible. He's came oh, so- I think he's found his feet. I think he's... Since when he when that that massive cup game against Reading where it was like 5-5 before extra time and he was in goal for that I think it was I think that was his Arsenal debut but I'm not sure yeah it was his Arsenal debut 7-5 against Reading (laughs) Bert Leno is possibly one of the best goalkeepers in the world and they are they are big gloves to fill and he did it spectacularly and I don't think United have a person who could step up to that kind of level no. That was the point I was trying to make. I think Henderson would be that, but I don't want him to be that. I want him to start signing for Sheffield United. So I think it'd be interesting to see, you know, with being back in European football and being back in the Champions League and it is a bit more of a challenge, you know, it feels like he's on the big stage again rather than like oh, playing on a Thursday night and the champions of Romania or whatever. Like yeah, it's it's a big name goalkeeper. You know, he's supposed to be one of the best goalkeepers in the world. So when you're not really getting the competition for that, yeah, I can understand exactly. why you'd feel a bit like, oh, what's the point of this? There's no one there to kind of make him better. From a team with a Spanish international goalkeeper to another one, Chelsea came in fourth, last the top four. Arguably a much more questionable than De Gea this season. Kepa Arizabalaga. He has definitely had a, a fairly poor season. He's conceded 47 goals when really, given the shots that were coming at him, was only expected to concede 36. So he's he's very much performed under what was expected of him and very much under what he probably should have done given what he actually came up against. Especially well below what he's worth as well. Given that he is the world's most expensive goalkeeper. Yeah, uh, I was about to mention that one. Is it just, a, as you said earlier, Dan, sometimes goalkeepers do have an off-season. Is this an off-season or is this maybe Kepa's not the keeper we thought he was? From what I've seen of Kepa before he joined Chelsea, I believe he is having a bit of an off-season. I'd say give him one more, one more year. <clears throat> I'd say give him one more year, but whether Frank Lampard will have the patience with his attitude is an entirely different question uh, altogether. Yeah, he had problems while Mauricio Sarri was Chelsea manager last season. I think the, the bigger problem here could be how Kepa feels about playing football in England rather than his ability as a goalkeeper. For what Chelsea paid for him, it's it's just it's not even comparable how bad he's been. Just uh, a habit of signing overpriced Spanish players, though. But Chelsea actually haven't been very poor this season. You know they've been very good. Chelsea. Expectations for Chelsea were were fairly low this season. To finish fourth and get Champions League football, I think is a fair achievement for them. 
honourable mention. So well, well done, Chelsea. I think the signings that they've already made and are likely to make in the next sort of week or so, I think will I... be a big tide turner for them. Mateo Kovacic and Christian Pulisic have both been pretty good at moving the ball forward, but they've done it with the ball at their feet rather than passing the ball forward. I like Pulisic. He's probably one of my favourite players in the Premier League these days. He's exciting to watch. He does things that you kind of don't quite expect him to do. He bless me, tries. He just gives it a go, like... He's got, you know, he's had a fair few amount of unsuccessful dribbles this season, but he's had a lot of successful ones. So, you know, he's, he's putting the effort, he's giving it a go, which, you know, what more can you ask for to a certain extent? I, I love Pulisic. I think Pulisic, Havertz and Werner in a top, like, attacking four. And Hakim Ziyech. And Hakim Ziyech. Exactly. In the middle. It's yeah. like, what on That's earth? a dangerous How team. Would they put the money on Chelsea to win the league now. They've got to win a 7-5 every week. I'm very excited for next season because theoretically the signs that are going to be coming through with Chelsea, Man United look like they could be really quite a good force. Liverpool obviously being excellent and Man City being pretty excellent. I think you could have a real proper title race next season and that's going to be a real nice change. Obviously last year we had the, the close finish between City and Liverpool. Which was, which was nice and which was exciting, but oh, I've, I want a good top four title race. I want to see them all trading points and trading wins and there being like three points in it. Oh, I want a title race like the relegation race this season. So there's, there's another, another Chelsea player, uh, potentially he's linking into transfers that we've that mentioned, um, that I kind of want to mention, um, which is Willian, who hasn't signed a, who, as far as I'm aware, has not signed a new contract. Looks like he'll be on his way out. But actually, he's been very good for them this season. You know, he's he's completed more, he's successfully completed more dribbles this season than Pulisic. He's not young, no, I think he's plus 30 now. But it looks like Williams going to be on his way out, which I'm not sure it's a good move in the weirdest way. Like, at the start of this season, I would have gone, oh, yeah, get rid of him. Like, yeah, he's, you know, he's getting on a bit. Really a big deal, it's not really a big loss. But he's actually performed really well this season. He's had his glory days at Chelsea. I think he needs to kind of, he needs a new challenge. I think at this point in time, Chelsea's attack options that well attacking options plus the people that they're looking at I don't see him in that squad I think yeah he's gonna be a good squad player but at 31 with arguably three or four years left in him playing at a top level is William gonna be satisfied at playing second fiddle to Pulisic, Ziyech, Mason Mount? I don't I don't at all think that he'll be happy with with the position he'll be in at Chelsea because it's not really his place anymore. But I think I think he's still good and I think they could still use him. Like another player that's probably on the way out of Chelsea that has, has been a fairly reasonable performer. I don't think it's too much of a worry as much as William. Um, is Jorginho, who looks like he's going to be going reuniting with Mauricio Sarri at Juventus. I don't think it's a big loss. Again, he's he's been good. He's you know he's, his passing's been good. That's what he's there for. Doesn't really help out in the pressure. It's just not his game, which I don't think really helps Chelsea this season. Let him go, I reckon. I think so too. I can't. I for me, if I was Frank Lampard, I'd be looking at my squad and going, "Who don't I need? Who is bit part? Who can I offload? Who can Absolutely. I get short of?" I'm going to move on to. It's been a pleasure, gents. So until next week. Until next week. Enjoy oh. painting your fence, love. Dave randomly was looking out the window and saw a woman painting a fence, so he said, enjoy painting your fence, love. But the way he said it was like he was signing off at the end of like an interview. Uh, in, the, in the immortal words, in the immortal words, as, as we always say, as we always say on this pod, podcast, enjoy painting your fence, love, I suppose. <laughs> That'll fix your watch. <laughs> <laughs> right. Your watch. See you next week, boys. Bye.